Hi there, this is What's Next in Mental Health, where we explore key challenges, future directions, and advances in the big picture of mental health. I'm clinical psychologist and psychotherapist Helena Service. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, a quick note. Today we're discussing outcome measurement in psychotherapy. If you enjoy it, you might also want to have a look at the episodes with John Norcross and Bruce Wampold about psychotherapy. Today we have Chris Evans with us. I'm, I'm excited to talk about psychotherapy outcome measurement with him. He's an honorary professor at the University of Roehampton in the UK, an honorary visiting professor at UDLA in Ecuador, that's the Universidad de las Americas, and he's a freelance researcher. And he's trained in medicine and psychiatry. He's qualified in both individual analytic psychotherapy, group analysis, and family or systemic therapy. He's one of the developers of the Clinical Outcomes in Routine Evaluation, or CORE system, and the co-author of the book, Outcome Measures and Evaluation in Counseling and Psychotherapy. Chris, welcome. Great to talk to you. Kitos. <laughs> you know something? Finnish. One word. <laughs> Thank you. That, that, that's enough to make Finnish people delighted. <laughs> like, that's more than, than most people. <laughs> Good. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Right. Yeah. So, hey, you've worked so much in, in psychotherapy outcome measures and have, have kind of insights into that. So yeah. mo most of our outcomes we measure with these self-report questionnaires in, in different different forms. Yeah. Sometimes a bit of like, and you'll have other measures as well, but those seem to be the most dominant. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think of that? Like what, what if we dive straight into it, like what are the pros and cons in, in, in how how we do uh, this? Um, right. Well, I started um, when my daughter fitted between my hand and my elbow. She was about three weeks old. That's when we had the first meeting about core. She's 29 next week. So it's been a long journey. And I was thinking about it before for quite a few years. Um, you're absolutely right. Multi-item, nomothetic questionnaires, self-report questionnaires have become dominant. Go back to when we started, particularly as a psychiatrist. Um, psychiatrists then very much believed in interviews. It held mm. on to their professional authority. And in some ways, I think clinical psychologists did too. Questionnaires were a bit of a cheapo, because they are. Um, obviously, they privilege the user's voice. Um, there is only the user's voice. Um, and... They've taken off. So I suppose over the last 40 years, they've gone from a sort of tolerated cheap option that researchers kind of were a little bit ambivalent about to something absolutely dominant. As you say, in the UK, IAPT, Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, it's a massive program to do, attempt to do what it says, um, is getting measures filled in every time someone has a contact with the service. I don't think it quite includes when they phone up to make an appointment. But certainly if, if there's a phone call to rearrange an appointment by the therapist, I think I believe they're expected to do a check-in of at least two, perhaps three measures. So it's become, in some ways, I think Stalinist. This is very top-down, uh, an insistence that everyone must do this. So pros, I think, go back 40 years to when I was coming into this, psychotherapists were in the closet. We, we, we were very proud of our confidentiality, rightly and so on. But boy, had we very little evidence to offer. Self-report questionnaires don't breach confidentiality. My score never going to identify me. Um, and they are cheap. Um, and they've become incredibly prevalent. And I think that's a good thing. I think there's a huge downside that I think we've got carried away with this and we're not very thoughtful about it. So the thrust of the book Joanne and I wrote, I, we call it the OM book. Joanne is quite seriously into yoga and there's something about OM we quite like, outcome measuring, yeah. Um, our thrust is we think outcome measures are good, we think self-report multi-item questionnaire measures are good, but let's be careful. Very long answer to a short question. I have a nasty feeling that's going to be the pattern for us today. It was no, no. This, this is this. I really want to get into this because it's not. 
I, I think that we're having too much of a conversation of it's like good versus bad rather than how can we do it in a way that is helpful? How can we mitigate the problems with it? Because we also know that if we don't measure outcomes at all, then then often we're relying on on the therapist's understanding of what's happening. Mm. And that's also very problematic. Like we have these studies that that mm. really, really kind of like, like eh, I hate to say it, as a therapist, I wish the studies were showing that we had better intuition about what's going on. But we have both in in terms of like how we assess ourselves and how well we're doing as a therapist. Like there's this big uh, survey that, that I remember was quite shocking to me because I think the the it was not a couple hundred therapists. It was like thousand, thousand. I think it was even 10,000. 10, and, and like nobody thought that they were below average when when rating themselves as a therapist. So 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 clearly like we, we have these biases. We're humans too. And then it's not just that. It's also if you look at... Uh, identifying ruptures in in situations. If you look at alliance me measures, then then the patient is a better better measure for how the alliance uh, relates to outcome than than the therapist. Uh, observers are better at rating it than than the therapist. So when we're embedded in the process, even with this training of trying to take ourselves out of it, looking at it objectively, then we are a subjective party to it. So so like it's clear that we have to do something to to also look at look at what's going on in in with some other perspectives but then as you say if we rely too much on just simplistic measures then then they can be misleading especially when you look at like an individual process in therapy yep um, absolutely agree with you um, and you've packed an awful lot in there I think the survey you're referring to I can never remember Mike Lambert um, who's one of the absolute gods of routine outcome measurement uh, what Joanne and I call embedded change measurement um, often cites that study um, and he presented this in the UK at one point and um, someone bravely put their hand up and said, Mike, that's a transatlantic phenomenon. In the UK, if you do that phenomenon, 90% <laughs> of therapists would rate themselves as below the median. Um, and I think there are huge cultural differences. You know, there's an enormous North American pressure, I think, to be achieving. And and I think there has been. I think it's changing. I think we're, we've, the, as you know, the UK is migrating away from Europe across the Atlantic um, pushed by Brexit. Um, I think our culture has changed, but it was very not the done thing to boast about yourself. So I, I'm a little bit cherry of some of those self-ratings, um, but certainly we need multiple perspectives. And I think being in the closet in the way we were was clearly damaging for some people. It meant people had appalling outcomes, as you, I think as you were touching on. I think it means some people were frankly abused by exploitative therapists and not just to go on getting money out of them, but far worse than I mean, we know sexual abuse went on. Questionnaires aren't going to solve that. A person who has got sucked into something very collusive like that is probably going to give you a lovely questionnaire measure about how good the alliance is. And so we do have to be a bit wary. Um, and there are multiple perspectives on this. Um, it depends a lot on what kind of therapy you're doing. Um, I, as you listed off that list of trainings, uh, which all feels a long time in the past now in some ways. Um, I am, I confess, a believer in the analytic unconscious. I worked for eight years in a high secure hospital in the UK with people who were deemed grave and immediate danger to the public. I don't like diagnosis, but I do believe there are some ideas, like very broadly the idea of a psychotic experience. I'm not too happy about labelling people as a schizophrenic. I'm not happy about that. But I think when we start to forget that there are many people who perhaps could benefit from psychotherapy, who perhaps are going to approach a self-report questionnaire in a very non-typical way, we've got to keep that in mind. Um, there's a lovely review of routine outcome measurements just come out in psychotherapy research by Michael Barkham, who's one really, he and I were the main, uh, we were probably the co, the, the, the uh, same-sex parents of CORE way back. There was a, mm. it was a much bigger team, like a lot of people involved. With Michael, um, 
Wolfgang Lutz in Trier, um, Jamie Degadello uh, from Sheffield. Oh, I'm trying to remember who the other author is. There is another. Um, shame on me. Looking, oh, Kim De Jong from the Netherlands. And they keep writing as if psychotherapy is only done with reasonably well-motivated, reasonably self-aware clients. And it becomes that they say this is for psychotherapy. And I think there's an enormous danger in this, that there are huge categories of people with problems who are not those people. So there is a danger we're going to marginalise some of the kind of therapy I did, giving giving a person who, someone I worked with quite a while, had killed two people, um, giving him a questionnaire, giving him a core questionnaire, wasn't going to tell either of us anything about where the therapy was going. So let's be careful not to, con- not to somehow steer psychotherapy so that it's all about the mild to moderately anxious and depressed. I'm not saying they don't need help. They do. And lots of therapies can be incredibly helpful. And their routine outcome measurement, I think, can be very helpful. But let's be careful. Yeah, I think this is I think this is very important. I think this is kind of the conversation where because there are different perspectives of of how the measures are used. Right. There's like the service provider. Yes. Perspective of, of like overall. How are things going in 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 the service? Then there's the individual therapist of like how how am I doing overall what what types of things using it as as a tool for example in deliberate practice to, mm-hmm. to yep. identify yes. what, what what to work on yes and then there's the individual process of an individual therapy and and how how like much yep. we we give weight in that versus we have all these all this other information to use then when yep. we're the therapist there there yep. as well yes and and so when you talk about these different groups like you said like people that are psychotic or have have those types of issues that, that they're a group where we should see like h- how well do these uh, self-report measures work if you've worked clinically then mm-hmm. then you will have come across patients where the self-report measures do not reflect what's going on. So yeah. I, I think that, that that it's it's kind of like I, I don't mm. think that there's a conversation to be had that they're, that they're never wrong. Like it's, it's no. I think it's more of of how we but personality disorder patients mm. as, as well. Mm. It's interesting to see what happens dissociation. Like there are all these yes. subgroups yes. of patients Absolutely. where you can see that that this is this is tricky. But then uh, and it's kind of how do we navigate that so yep. that we still have some kind of a of a of an understanding at a service level as well of how things are working mm. and and it's it's not uh, and it's important because i know that for example in iapt when they've identified services that are not doing that well mm-hmm. then they they might find problems that have nothing to do with how the therapy is being provided like maybe there's an issue at that like work culture issue or whatever and then when they work through that then then also the outcomes yeah. improve yeah. So, so there's a value to having it, but there are all these kind of like caveats of of of, of troubles as well. What what do you think we can do about these different uh, patient groups? Well, like, is is there something to be done? Uh, definitely, and I think the first thing to be done is to acknowledge it because I think you're absolutely right. Um, you've done a lot of clinical work, I'm guessing. You've you know, got a psychology training and a psychotherapy training. You've by now seen a diversity of things. I suspect that, like me, you're using phrases like personality disorder with a little bit of yes. waving our quotation marks in the air and so on. It's good um, that you point that out because that is important. <laughs> okay. it's, a hobby, it's, a hobby, it's a hobby horse of yes. mine. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's terribly important. And the best, the first thing is to have a conversation about it. One of the um, <laughs> one of the unfulfilled aims I had really about thirty years ago, no, probably about after ninety eight, which is when Core was launched, um, was I wanted to do a project which I called something like the margins of Core, because we chose the word Core. You can imagine an awful lot of serious work, research work went into choosing an acronym and a name. And this was before Google, really. It was the internet. It was vital to what we were doing. We didn't realize this was a very bad acronym because if you search for core, you get nuclear reactor core, you get core of the earth, <laughs> you get apple core. Um, but it seemed like quite a nice choice of a name because we saw it as only a core, that it was not going to apply to everyone. So I thought, well, we can immediately identify 
just as you've been doing, a highly plausible set of clients who, for whom it may not be entirely suitable or perhaps not suitable at all. And one of the jokes in the psychometric field is if you give someone a questionnaire in English and they really only speak and read Chinese, it doesn't matter. You can't talk about the questionnaire being a validated questionnaire. For that client, it's useless. Yeah. Um, I think for some people, perhaps it's not quite as clear-cut as that, but it's getting on that way. Um, and it seems to me some of the people you've just been talking about are good examples Another very interesting thing that emerges is the amount of self-referential versus normative work that goes on in someone's head when they fill something in. I suspect different people do that very differently. We've Since we started, of course, the whole field of autistic spectrum disorders and the notion of neurotypical, neurotypical, which just does a lot to destigmatize this usefully, I think, has come along. I'm fascinated by the idea that along an autistic spectrum, some of us intuit another mind and another mind that's intuiting, not just consciously constructing. So we, I suspect, are both partly below consciousness, not an analytic unconscious, but that you're patrolling my facial reactions, my tone of voice, etc., etc., and it's guiding where you're going, and I'm trying to do a bit of that too. If you weren't born and if you didn't grow up being given lots of training in how to do that, completely unknowing training, but that's what most parents, school teachers, peers, friends do, you don't have that. What do you do when a questionnaire says, how, you know, do you feel okay about the things you've done? What does that mean? The other thing is some people have grown up with great reason to be wary about other people. So we both agreeing to put our inverted commas in the air around <laughs> personality disorder, access, all of that. Um, but yeah, they work really well in audio. The, the <laughs> <air> <laughs> I've just been thinking, um, <laughs> my waving my fingers in the air. Anyway, <laughs> and it, you know, psychotherapy is, and even now, um, post-coronavirus, so much of it has now moved on online. And that's wonderful in many ways, but you do lose some of these channels. You can't tell the person hasn't washed for three weeks because of the way they smell when they come into the room. Um, but we're probably doing a lot of that, that intuiting. We also, I suspect, quite often intuit, why has someone given me this questionnaire? And in fact, one of the papers, this latest review of routine outcome monitoring quotes, is that one of the f- most clients in this sort of what you might call routine outcome monitoring norm, typical clients for whom it's very suitable, mm. including the ones who are so-called off track, which I suspect we'll come to. Yes. Um, don't mind. In fact, most of them quite like being given questionnaires. And sometimes I think there's a danger that when we give a questionnaire, the client can feel attended to. They can feel a relief. Here are a set of questions we can talk about. But what about the thing that's going on in the background is that your sexuality isn't the one you're living openly? There isn't a question about that. Mm. I think there's a danger then that the whole thing will go along, ah, right, these are the things this therapist wants me to talk about. I sort of know that's probably not the whole story, but fine. We'll keep each other happy. We'll play dummy exchanges. So there's a danger there. Um, I worked with people who'd had horrific childhoods. Obviously, I couldn't go back and verify a lot of that. A lot of it, some of it was verified. Some of it was so plausible. They're not going to have a typical response to someone giving them a questionnaire, probably the first thought. So what's going on here? Why am I being asked to do this? Refugees, particularly persecuted refugees, you give them an official form. First reaction is, what is going on here? What am I supposed to say? Mm. Not, not, nothing to do with that little blurb at the top that says there are no right or wrong answers. Tell me how you feel. So we've got to be having this conversation. You just put it slap bang into this conversation. It's almost entirely absent from the research literature. And I think it has not reached the political thinking about using routine outcome measures. That's dangerous. And there's an element of self-censorship there that I think particularly psychotherapy researchers want to present this rather nice gilded story about routine outcome measurement. 
um, know that what you're saying is right. Are there empirical studies of that? Did I go and get funding for you know, the, the limits of core, the outer margins of core? No, I didn't. Um, I didn't try very hard. I'm not much of a grant giver. Um, grant, grant getter. I'd love to be a grant giver. Um, yeah, but I think there's a, a complex process now that senses what we explore and is terribly driven, certainly in the UK, by what is going to be an acceptable answer to the grant givers and mm. to a large extent those of the government. Mm. And I don't think we have governments particularly interested in some of these questions. They want neat answers, how to get everyone back in work. Um, so we've got to be careful and we've got to look at our collusion with these things. Sorry. Yeah, no, no I, I think that what you're saying is, is, is really important because I think that... Uh, like, well, with with uh, the pharmaceuticals, uh, the, you have the whole big bigger business interest involved as well. We discussed this to some extent with with Joanna Moncrief mm. in in relation to antidepressants. Mm. But overall, like we seem to have a system where there's that's kind of like a systemic bias towards the good news yes. and yes. potential new things. Uh, yep. And and we're not we're not balancing that out with with giving out research to to look at limitations and harms uh, and 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 what yeah. what what we might be wrong about. So there's I think there's a real like uh, I, I I don't think that this is an area where I think that this is uh, like unusually strong in routine outcome measurement. I think that it's yeah. more that this is just something that across the board is is a yeah. problem and yeah. nobody. We, uh, we we really need to have a conversation about how to fix it if, yes. if we want to yes. get on track. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, you know, I listened to the podcast um, with Joanna. Um, I say as if I know her, I know her work well. Um, and you know, I completely agree. And you're absolutely right. This is not specific to antidepressants. Big Pharma is enormous. And I think her, her point and the point she was making there was that things have changed radically from the 90s. And she was citing that survey where the general population being surveyed mostly had non-biochemical explanations for depression in 91, I think it was. Do that now in 2023. There's an extreme, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's biological, you know, it's biochemical. Um, and that is a problem. And certainly this is, it was the largest single contributor to the UK GDP uh, the pharmaceutical industry. I don't know how it sits in Finland. Um, but this is a massive amount of power. The, there isn't anything like that. And in some ways, that's a bonus for us as, psych as psychotherapists. We're never going to be billionaires, are we? Um, you don't go into this profession to be a multimillionaire. Um, and that has its advantages. But I think we so often go into this to do good. And that can often lead to a lot of self-censorship and trying to do good and seeing things as good and, as you, exactly as you said, trying to see the rosy side. And not. Um, and I think particularly a lot of what we're doing as psychotherapists, I sometimes, <clears throat> in the psychiatric world, in the medical world, a bit like routine outcome monitoring, there's been a huge focus on no, no fault blame and the aviation industry as a way of looking to different kind of monitoring but looking at where things did go wrong and what can you learn and what can you take out of that. Um, and I think we could learn quite a bit from that. To some extent, medics are increasing in that role now. If I, as a medic, prescribe the nice, approved, correct antidepressant and my patient still goes out and kills himself or, worse, goes out and kills someone else, I can say, sorry, not my responsibility. I'm, I'm deeply sad and traumatized and I wish it hadn't happened that way but I was doing the nice approved thing I think as psychotherapists we know we don't have that sort of third party to blame the only people and I don't like the way we always talk as if psychotherapy is always individual therapy mm, and by the way that, there are two, and by the way there are two people in individual therapy we, we can't count can we <laughs> dyadic therapy um, in dyadic therapy there are only two people in the room to blame aren't there so we get into this nasty situation where when a tragedy happens or when something's gone off track, it's going to be very reassuring if we can say we did what the protocol was. And I do worry a bit about that because I think it could lend to lead us to become a profession 
sort of flying by protocol rather than flying by intense attention to what the other person's saying, doing, smelling like, walking around the room, how did they hang up the coat as they came in. All these funny things that leak information to us. Yes, as you say, perhaps we may pass that information very badly. We may not see a rupture because the way the coat was hung up when it was screaming at us if we'd looked in the right way. But the danger is I think we can look at the questionnaires and say it was all going the right way. So again, I think off track and things like that. Great for probably, I don't think it's as big a core Mm. as of the clients that we deal with as I think the literature suggests. What what is it that the literature suggests? Well, um, good question. Off track is still a minority of cases, and that's where routine outcome, like when we're talking about routine outcome measuring as in session by session, each each session measuring, then then those are the cases where where we really see the kind of promise promise of this. uh, Yeah, I mean, good good to define that. That's absolutely right. Um, And one of the things I think we're starting to recognise is session by session is probably right for up to 20 sessions or whatever. Perhaps if your your duration of therapy is quite a bit longer than that, it may be a bit too intense. That may be too much. There are a whole series of parameters like that we've got to think about. But yes, we're talking about, for the moment, a paradigm case, one-to-one therapy, sessional measurement, probably somewhere in the range of a planned 6 to 24, to take the IAP mm. model, uh, depending what step you're in. Um, and we're talking about looking at whether the co- the scores are on track or off track. A number of different ways of doing that. And again, I think there's a bit of a problem that we're talking as if that's there's only one way of doing that. One way is just to take everyone who's come in for therapy and some body of similar clients. What do I mean by similar clients? So we then split it a bit by, say, gender, age. Perhaps it's a bit embarrassing. Some countries are not even allowed to do it. Um, income, whether you're employed or not. I think one of the variables we should be looking at very carefully is, is this the first ever therapy someone mm. had? Because I think when they're coming back for the 10th therapy, you're not you're not dealing with the same thing. Um, how long have they been on antidepressants, let's say? Are they now on antidepressants? So off track, on track for whom is one of the interesting questions. Um, I was a co-author. Wolfgang Lutz was probably the main driver. Um, what we what we call the avalanche paper, the idea that rather than looking at the global of a large data set, we try to identify a certain number of nearest neighbours, most similar clients to the client we've got in front of us. Actually, comes out of the fact that Wolfgang at the time I think was working in Switzerland, and Trier, and he had discovered that avalanche prediction tends to work on looking at the nearest neighbours to the scenario you're in, not the whole global. Mm. Partly because avalanches are a fairly typical chaotic process. They're non-linear, iterative. Once the snow starts moving, what's it going to do? And the kind of linear models that are aggregate data don't work so well for that. Nearest neighbours works better. What we found at the time was that nearest neighbour prediction of on-track did better than these various ways. But what are the variables we put in? We weren't putting in, we were putting in gender, age, starting score. It wasn't much more than that. You're a psychotherapist. What else do you take into account when you start seeing someone as a possible, when you think about their nearest neighbours? What do you think about? Well, I think there's a whole, like there are so many different perspectives. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think mm. when you ask different psychotherapists, they will will, will say different things. That's true. But, That's very true. I mm. think the one thing that is is like, that I, I don't hear at least a lot of the research, if there is a lot of research, then it's, it's not reaching me, is, is kind of the social factors in, in the person's yeah. life. Yes. Like, what, what are their relationships like? How, how yeah. many of them, what, whether they're happy in, in like, things. And then, then of course, yes. you get the, the intra-psychic, like a zero, you yep. know, goes through mm. of, of like, how does this, how, how capable is this person of mm. reflecting on, on, on things? Mm. How, how do mm. they mm. Uh, position mm. themselves in the relationship, like mm. to, to find, like, how do they react to things how how much do they push back mm. when when yep. uh, yes. offered an alternative stuff 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 like yes. this and and probably many more that I just I'm, I'm not <laughs> yeah but that's a lovely list it's a lovely list um and absolutely and, and I think you're also you made that 
lovely starting point. Different therapists would give different answers, partly because they work with different clients, partly because the service they're in may create different parameters, etc. But you're so right. And I think a lot of what we're doing at the moment, for understandable reasons, we don't collect a lot of that data, partly because it's boring. We created alongside the core OM, we created the core A, which is two forms. It was four sides of A4. The core A TAF therapy assessment form mm. was one attempt to try and create a generic set of these things. So it asked things like, do you, are you in a care of responsibility, employment, non-employment, medication, psychotropic medication? I think it's probably been used in fewer than 1% of the times that the core OM has been used. Mm. I suspect it's quite well under 1%. Yeah. We need to be much more thoughtful, I think, about exactly what you're saying there. Then I think we'll get to much better what is on track, what's off track. Hi, I'm Helena. I'm a psychologist and co-founder at a Finnish social enterprise called Mindu. We work with psychological treatments and the digital mental health space. And sometimes we mental health professionals can get quite focused or even siloed in our areas of expertise. So we wanted a podcast to keep up with advances and challenges more broadly and to try to make sense of the overall picture. If you think what we're doing is useful, please spread the word. Like, uh, tell a colleague, consider rating or reviewing the podcast. It, it would really be a big help. Thanks. Do you think that with all the information that we need, mm -hmm. like uh, that, I, I think part of this is having a discussion of how the how the information is used still, like that, that we don't over rely it on is. the information, yep. but but and have safeguards for how the institutions that yes. like provide these, yes. how they react to it, so that we can feel safe enough as therapists yes. that this is not something used just to monitor us, but this is yes. a tool for us yes. to to be yes. uh, taken into account with all the other con contextual information, but. I think it's so important that you're saying that we have all this data that's missing. Mm. Now I remember what, what when it was that we have, because we have a system where so much of it seems to be stemming not from how do we help people best, but kind of like the niches that we approach it from. So we have mm. lots of mm. research on different uh, techniques, different different orientations, mm. yep. and then the basic like gender, age, yes. stuff yeah. that, yeah. that I guess we're waking up to it maybe now that we, mm. if we just continue doing this and just competing like horse race of like, yes. well, which orientation was the right one and which one then that we, we won't mm. get far. So with the amount of kind of nuances in therapy that you need, like it's probably an interactive process of so mm. many different variables mm -hmm. that are involved, yep. Yep. then Do you think that it's possible for us to, uh, like you said, that you have the measure, the the core, it, what was it, what, the A, core A, did you yes, say it was? core A, yeah. <laughs> that, that, assessment. That, yeah. that kind of gives you, like, yeah. it start, in the start of it, you could give it and you'd yeah. get more of that. It, and, and then researchers and service providers mm -hmm. would have a richer data to actually figure out what, what's going on if, if we yeah. took in more data. But But do you think that it's doable with this? these outcome measures and we just need to add in variables or do you think we need some kind of big data more like, like <laughs> approach like will this is this going to be sustainable in the future do we I, tweak it or, or do you think a, a new paradigm will come and we'll be using uh, machine learning on on transcripts and yeah. and <laughs> this is my nostradamus moment i predict a new paradigm will come I'm yep. not telling you what or when, <laughs> but I'm going to win with that one. Um, I'm absolutely sure. It's a super question. Um, thank you. Um, because I think sometimes we can get preoccupied and sound as if these measures are going to be the only measures and forever or whatever. And just because I happen to be involved in developing core, and I'm proud of that. Um, I'm proud of the fact we made it copy left. You can't change it without our permission. You can't translate it without working with us. But you can reproduce it to your heart's content without mm. paying us a penny because we're a penniless profession, you know, as we said earlier. So that was a good thing, too. I am proud of it. It's got a life expectancy on it. I don't think it'll still be a dominant measure, even where it is, in 40, 50 years' time. I don't think the PHQ GAD will be. Maybe they will be. They're very much part of, you know, they're essentially converting DSM into a self-report questionnaire. Mm. That means they've got the power of DSM behind them. I suspect we're seeing the power of DSM 
has to some extent two of your podcasts I've listened to, both Joanna's, Joanna uh, Moncrief's and John Norcross's, are saying, look, these these are not the, the answers. All this categorization of people, it's not predictive of how therapy is going to go for them. Um, it's not much use to us. So I think those paradigms will decline. It'll take time. Um, I think big data, I, I don't know, that's a nice looking watch. And is that also telling you your blood pressure and your heart rate and your... God, no. I no. would be attending <laughs> yeah. to nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, got, I'm, with, I'm with so many people now who have fancy watches as big as that. And those watches are telling them this, how their sleep was last night, how, whether they're getting their steps in today. We're moving into this new paradigm, I think, of portable self-monitoring, aren't we? I suspect we're going to see people, and I suspect, rightly, as long as it's done with curiosity and open-mindedness, we're going to see that data becoming increasingly important. And maybe you're going to have a watch that goes beep. Mm. And you're supposed to go, uh, I'm about nine out of ten at the moment. Mm. There are already people arguing that that's a better paradigm than doing a weekly core. I've got an open mind. I, I think that's going to need an awful lot of empirical work. What we were talking about earlier is I suspect it will suit, I'm sorry to say, Microsoft and Google and a couple of others to say it is better. We're going to have the same like big pharma problem. We're going to get mega data because we're going to get every, every fancy watch user on the planet contributing, um, you know, de-anonymizing anonymized, pseudonymized, so we know whose data it is, but not who that person is. And we're going to do miracles with this data. Mm. They're already saying we can predict who's going to have a heart attack. There was a problem that what they found was the people who were lying down were more likely to have had a heart attack. Actually, that makes sense. Um, and there are problems when you put AI on big data together. But for sure, I think that kind of monitoring of people's states is going to become important. Um, it allows you to have target complaints. This is one of, I'm also associated with a measure called Cyclops, where you ask about one or two problems that you want to change. And third question, what if these made it hard for you to do? And the client identifies each of the specific things. When you do that sort of thing with Cyclops or personal questionnaire, there are a variety of things like that. Almost always, it's more sensitive to change in therapy than any of our nomothetic questionnaires because it's very likely the client and the therapist, particularly in short-term therapies, will concentrate on what it was the client wanted to change. <laughs> and if that's what you're measuring, and if your watch says, remember your target problem was, how is it today? Mm. We could get very personalised data. One of the things John McClooper and others are very interested in is personalisation. Um, so I think that'll be a paradigm development. I think you're right. We're now going to have, we have systems like IAPT that lit, and they're talking about, is it 4 million people a year? That's quite a scary proportion of the population of the UK. So if you do that uh, for 20 years and there are 80 million people, we should all be cured, couldn't we? It's not going to work like that. We know it's not working like that. What we know is we see people for short-term therapies. Some of them, that's all they'll ever need. Lucky them even luckier the people who never need anything, who are perhaps quite rare. Actually, what I was seeing in secondary care in my last job was a lot of people coming along saying, look, I've done that. I've done that four times. First time, it was life-saving, probably. I was in a bad place. I had 24 sessions. It was amazing. I thought I was fixed. A year later, bang, I was back again. And I had another therapy, and it was useful, and I picked up a lot more skills. Last year, bang, it happened again. Um, it went along with losing my job, and of course being down made it more difficult to get my job back. And I did all my I did all my thinking skills, but I don't think doing more of that is the answer now. I think those are the kinds of new paradigm questions we're going to get into about the longitudinal lifetime patterns. And there are big confidentiality challenges there. People are reluctant to be tracked over time with the watch and Google doing it and doing it for every gin bunny. Um, they may be less reluctant. 
I have, interestingly, has never, as I, that I've seen, routinely looked at returning. So it kind of collects all this data on the one episode, but then really ignores the hugely epidemiologically important question of why do people come back? Why do they need more? Why do some people need more, others not? Does it tie it in with suicide data? Do we know how many people do commit suicide? So I think another paradigm, but it's going to have lots of confidentiality, huge, but a lovely data set. Not, I did include CORE in Emilia-Romagna in Italy. Um, eight years, it was over eight years, of a routine data set that had been collected by psychology services there. Thousands of clients. And we thought, oh, we can look at returning. Who returns? Are there any factors we think we could look at? Do any of the particular clinics do worse, better? We also have to recognise that returning may be a very good thing. Mm. Uh, people with access to personality disorder, it may be much better if they come back than they cut their wrists and end up in casualty again. Um, so I think it's quite important we don't just see returning as a necessarily a bad thing. But let's create longitudinal data. We have discovered that under Italian law, which is even more strict than G European GDPR, we simply can't even look at the data for any purpose other than helping the client, the individual client. And you can see why there's that concern. That is particular sensitive personal data, so anything to do with mental health. That's the law at the moment. Unless you've got prior permission, informed consent, saying what you're going to do with the data, which is a challenge, because in some ways with these huge data sets we're going to get, there will be emergent questions. We're not. What do we do? Do we say, could we have your data and we're going to analyse it however we like? Perhaps that's the best thing to do, as long as we say, and we will make absolutely sure you will never be identifiable. That will be a huge paradigm change because we can really start to look at returning, tied up to suicide rates, deaths of cirrhosis, what else, so many things. So yes, I think there'll be enormous paradigm changes. Those are all at the kind of epidemiological end and with the big data excitement, but also the spectre. You've also mentioned the micro, the individual client. I think we are going to become capable of looking much more at what goes on in the session. I've done a bit of work um, with Evren Amiavdi, a professor in Thessaloniki in Greece. And um, she, with, with Finnish colleagues, I must say, actually, it was a Finnish-funded study, um, they were getting the therapists and clients wearing heart rate monitors and looking at what happened and to what extent do they go up and down together, separately, etc. And you can then try that. And this is informed research work. Obviously, it's not every routine outcome monitoring. But you can look at how that ties up with the ruptures, for example, and identifying ruptures with the SRS or whatever, the three-coding uh, system. Um, that, I think, is going to be a big way forward to actually help us look much more at ruptures at the micro level. Oddly enough, whereas that was always straps around the chest and so on, maybe these watches are going to get so good we could get that out of a watch. That makes it perhaps more routine possibility. We've got AI coming in, which is going to be able to look at trans... It's going to... A, you've got coding systems that really do a pretty good job of transcribing, particularly if you've got microphones like this in the room, um, what's being said, and that goes on evolving. So we're going to, the whole cost of transcribing is going to drop dramatically. Confidentiality issues are going to be enormous. <laughs> but... It could become much more routine, and I suspect we're going to have people feeding those that information into AI. We know that there are things like um, filter out so many of the high um, frequencies, so all we hear is a sort of different rumbling going on. People can detect quite a lot of emotional tone to that rumbling. They can't work out what's being said, they can't identify anyone. So are we going to start to use things like that? One of my worries about the outcome measure paradigm, as it is at the moment, is it sort of fits into an industrialising, commoditizing, managerialist agenda. And that sucks the money and it, I think, deters these much more exciting possibilities. Real synergy between qualitative and quantitative, for example. Got to get there. 
These are qualitative processes we're engaged in. They're not simply quantifiable. Um, Can I ask yeah. to clarify? <laughs> no, no, I, no, no, because this is, I, I think that this is, um, I'm curious about this. Do you think that this type of monitoring, do you think it will become routine as in, in general services for, for practitioners? Or are you talking more about it becoming routine in research? Let me setting. just check which sort of branch well, you're talking about. You're talking about like the watch I don't ma- monitoring stuff or or, or, I don't or know. having, you know, the, mm. the transcripts and stuff. I, the, I stuff that sounds pretty scary still with the idea. <laughs> like mm. I would have a record of each client's each session. With, yep. Like everybody would have that yep. so, somewhere. Yeah. God, God forbid. I think that no. would be a try. No, uh, that, that feels to me a bit of a, uh, you know, sort of... Um, yeah, uh, that that's a bit of a nightmare scenario. I think no, I don't yeah. think we should be there. Although at the I, same time, you wonder like with with all this voice recognition software, <laughs> there are companies out there with the microphone on on for for things that that we. It's horribly like, w- possible. We'll, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. I'm, you know, um, the Joanna's point about the change in thirty years in people's perception of depression. In the last 30 years in the UK, people have gone from seeing a CCTV camera up on the wall anywhere in public spaces as, oh, that's a bit, oh, look, look, there's a CCTV camera. I wonder what that's there for, to not even noticing they're there. I mean, and there are, I I think, millions of them across the UK. I think we have to be careful. I'm saying, no, I don't think that's going to happen, and God forbid it should. But again, I think we have to be careful we don't collude with that. I'd love to see... I don't know how we do it, but allowing that maybe 10% of psychotherapists with the curiosity and with links with other professions, and I don't just mean psychologists, I mean mathematicians, mm. uh, qualitative conversationalists, wouldn't it be lovely if instead of spending an awful lot of money on a better computer system or more outcome monitoring, we gave 10% of them who had the curiosity and maybe got a master's or something that would prove they had a bit more than just their training necessities, gave them one day of their week to explore some of these things in partnership with researchers. I think if you spent the money that's been spent on outcome monitoring in I would say, in doing that, we'd have learned far, far more about what works, what doesn't, for whom which therapists can work with whom, then we have a lot of money has been spent just collecting data. Um, we do very little with it. But it is a first step in, in <laughs> having setting a system. Like I, I think that, I think, and I've, 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 I've uh, collaborated with, with David Clark. I, 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 I like him. Uh-huh. I have respect, respect mm. for him. Mm. I, I think that, uh, I think that we're taking first steps in things that we've been kind mm. of in it, hidden, like, Mm. Yep. out of sight before and and that that i i worry that people shoot down first steps even though they're going uh, in in directions that we need we need to be taking steps and we need to be figuring them out and mm. and finding ways to mitigate them uh, yeah. mit- mitigate the the troubles that you can have r- rather than saying let's go back to to uh to not monitoring. Oh, I'm certainly yeah. not saying we should go back to not monitoring. Sorry if I come across like that. Um, and in some ways, I mean, I've, I've met David a couple of times. Um, we probably see the world slightly differently. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean, I think there was an, that was an enormous step forward. I mean, IAPT in some ways and its use of measures or its, its mandating of measures has been transformative. But also it's scaling up of, of psychological treatments, which is something that we've struggled with for a long time, saying that, okay, people get medicated, but they don't get psychological treatments. And and mm. set it, somebody setting up a system where, look, now we can scale this up. That, and, and, and you've clearly I, I got a similar thing going on at the moment mm. in Finland, from what I was learning from Vera, um, in terms of defining what a therapist would be in a short term, very short term, how much training. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see a lot more disentangling of what IAP did. Um, my, my perception is we don't, I haven't seen any evidence that it got people off antidepressants. I've seen very little evidence that it got a lot of people back to work who were unemployed before. These were the objectives it set itself. And I think it's quite 
it's a concern that that hasn't been explored. I agree. I think it's made therapy acceptable. It's transformative in the general public's view. I worry a little bit, like Joanna, that what that's done is simply to create an analogy that you can actually go to a therapist for anything. And if you're a bit unhappy today, you've got depression, you go and see your GP. I'm parodying. But I think we do need some anthropological curiosity about what it's done. And it did not create a good long-term career path that would be reasonably rewarding nor did it create a lot of research opportunities for psychotherapy and counselling. Um, really, to a large extent, the reverse, I think. It simply concentrated things into analysing IAP data. Some people, particularly the Sheffield Group, do wonderful things with that. Collaborations Manchester. I'm more sceptical. It created um, a very low-paid, low-status tier um, with very little career progression on beyond it. A lot of people went into it. There's a lot of evidence that a lot of them dropped out of it after quite short periods of time. Um, so I agree with you. We've we absolutely got to respect pioneering efforts. I would like to see a little bit more exploration, of more curiosity about showing that these things were good. I kind of love the fact that I gather killer, is it? are mandating the use of core at least once a year for adult clients that they are paying for. Because that seems to me it's top-down enough. From what I understand about attitudes to the, the broad spread of psychotherapists, particularly ones being funded by Killer, I think are going to be people doing work for whom routine outcome monitoring is entirely appropriate for quite a sizable proportion of their clients. Not everyone. Fine. Um, it's not the kind of top-down pressure that came in with IAPT. Um, and I do think David had to take a bit of responsibility for. He's, he's not a genial anarchist. He's, um, he's quite a controlling man. Um, and it suited the politicians, Tony Blair and people who were pushing it in originally. And it suited people since. It softened a bit. When we created CORE, one of our axioms was bottom-up, which is a little bit rude in English, really. But it was the idea that we were providing tools that were for uh, any therapist to use for free if they wanted to. Utterly naive about whether they'd have the skill set to make anything of it, any software to make anything of it. I think it was cha did change things, but utterly naive. I do worry about the top-downness of so much of this. Um, I agree with you. I think it's wonderful that Killer's doing this and that Finn's probably going to, as a result, I think, do a lot more routine outcome monitoring. The catch will be that people need support to use it well, and that costs money. I was very well paid as a psychiatrist. When I started, it was quite easy as a psychiatrist to get one to two days a week in the NHS purely for research. You didn't have to show you were a particularly good research or anything. That was a problem because a lot of people went off and played golf or whatever. I didn't. I worked damn hard and could get an awful lot done just on 20 to 40 percent of my salary. And Joanne, who's not only my co-author, co but my better half, um, went along with this. She was much less well paid at the time as a clinical psychologist. Um, and there was much less of a paradigm in clinical psychology of her having spare time for research. I think we've kind of squeezed things so that research is industrial practice now and it's only done by very well funded centres factories and they will only stay a factory if they continue to bring in, bring in the big grants so we've created an industrialization of therapy and therapy research I'm sure that paradigm will collapse but it's difficult to see how this is an interesting I, I wish we had more time to, to, <laughs> to get into this because I, 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 I would love to because I think that it seems that the kind of crux is is that we're gonna need, like like you said, you don't want to go back into just not monitoring no, anything. Absolutely like, not. Like so, no. we 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 can see from from the troubles we've had with like the psychotherapy wars and, and techniques and stuff that that, yeah. that 
if we just think we know what is causing mm. <laughs> change in psychotherapy mm. and, and mm. go with, with mm. our paradigms that we're trained in, mm. yep. then it doesn't look like we'll, we'll get very far. So we're going to need to look at it in a more complex way and, and be open to shifting how we, how we yep. uh, have like the things that we have been taught <laughs> like, yep, absolutely. Uh, to, to yep. find out what, where, where we, where we're right and where, where, where we're gone, mm. gone wrong. But I, I agree with this sentiment. I worry that if you set a very top-down structure, that 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 it needs guardrails and checks and balances, so that it doesn't gamify the system, so that yeah. you try to to yeah. to, to rig the yeah. results yeah. and 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 make it look good, hmm. because we want people to actually be getting better, and I think yeah. we want therapists to actually be able to work in yeah. in a surrounding where they where they feel that this is something that's for them and not not absolutely not yeah. like. Uh, yeah. To yeah. in a kind of malicious way checking checking yes. up on them, but but we yeah. to end. Mm. Uh, mm. What what do you think? If you got to decide, what would you, what would you do to to set things more in the direction that you see is important? What types of changes would you like to see implemented? Well, you had my Nostradamus earlier, and mm. now you get my. Eeyore. Do you know A.A. Milne? Um, oh, um, Eeyore is the very grumpy donkey, donkey yeah, yeah. In, the, in the poo. In Winnie the Pooh. In Winnie the Pooh. Yes, yes. I'm, I, my family regard me as Eeyore. <laughs> I, I have almost no hope, certainly in the UK, of these things changing in the near future. Listening to John Norcross's interview, you, you ended asking him what he would do to change certainly the research agenda. I don't entirely agree with most of what John had said before that because I think he's slightly offering all of what we're talking about, embedded change management, etc., as the new model. I found myself 100% agreeing with him about we need to rip up the entire research funding structure we have, throw it out, and start thinking about what questions really matter, what is the ladder of logic, I call it, and what is the trail of evidence? Those are sort of two legal terms to some extent in court processes, forensic processes. What's your train trail of evidence? And what is your ladder of logic in deciding something? I think, as John said, most of what we've got as ladders of logic are nonsense. Um, you've got to throw them out. I do think ROM is a huge improvement in our chains of evidence, our trails mm. of evidence, but it's not the only one. Mm. We need all these other ones. It's a bit like saying, oh, all we need is good fingerprint technology. No, we need a lot more than that. Um, will we get it? I I like to go to... I, I spent half the year in France now. I like to go to countries other than the UK, and I am such a Brit, um, but an ambivalent Brit, and say, look at all the things we did... Look at all the things we did wrong and do them differently. And it seems to me Finn's got a huge opportunity. I know you're not just doing this for the Finn, for the Finnish population. You're doing it for the world, which is super. But I think many countries are in that position. They can look at IAP. They can look at the kind of rather absolutist um, confidence that Mike Lambert, um, uh, John and people have in North America and say, this is all great. This is really pioneering. It's it's thrown much of those modality wars out the window. Thank God. And that's why I did three trainings, because I could see. It wasn't that bright, but I could see the modality wars were stupid. Um, most of that's been greatly diminished. Fantastic. But now let's go back to asking, what are the questions that really matter? How could we really get the appropriate evidence? Some of it for one case that you're working with, as you said. Some of it for just my practice as a whole, my service as a whole. For the country as a whole, these are different questions. Um, at the moment, I'm not terribly optimistic we're going to get there fast. <laughs> there, there is a lot of pessimism in the air. I, I, uh, I think sorry. Luckily, yeah. <laughs> l- no, 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 I'm not talking about you. I'm referring to when I ask this question from many other people, they're, they're pessimistic as well. <laughs> like I, uh, I, I, I think mm. I'm just temperamentally geared towards like the the optimism of I, I like things eventually like find their way and and paradigms yes shift. you sound you sound optimistic <laughs> and that's great um good luck to you yes and i and i am congenitally or i'm also congenitally cyclothymic i get very excited <laughs> i get very you can hear i get very excited about so much of this it's got so much promise but 
<sighs> looking at the politics of it all, it's easy to get very. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's important stuff. And Chris, yeah, th- thank you, it thank is. you so much for for chatting with me. Thank today. you very much. You <laughs> just. <laughs> Hey, please subscribe or leave a thumbs up if you enjoyed the show. Till next time.